This is Sports and Torts with David Spada and Elliot Harris on TalkZone.com. On the phone, we have Boston Celtic great John Havlicek. He was an eight-time NBA champ. He was the NBA Finals MVP in 1974, a 13-time All-Star, a four-time All-NBA team. He was on the All-Rookie team, NCAA champ. John, you did it all. Well, I tried. <laughs> and now you're a promising golfer, right? Golf game has gone by the wayside. I'm not playing very well, and I'm still playing, so that's a good thing. You need to write book around to motivate you. I think so. That would be a good thing. <laughs> he didn't like golf. He says it's like watching grass grow. You had the two personalities. You had Red Auerbach, and then when you were at Ohio State, weren't you teammates with Bobby Knight? Absolutely. What was Bobby Knight like in college? He was intense, a very good shooter, and defensively he didn't have the quickness that a lot of people had, but uh, he was always in position and, uh, you know, a, a player that helped us through some of the games that we played by contributing uh, in various ways. One of your Buckeyes teammates was Jerry Lucas. Did he do card tricks and things like that that he ended up doing later on to the night show back in the day? He was always off the wall with everything that he does now. He did then, and he just improved on it as time went on. But uh, he was a phenomenal mind, and uh, sometimes it's scary the way he thinks. At Ohio State, what made you so successful there? Was it just the camaraderie of the team or the coaching? Well, Fred Taylor was our coach, and I learned probably more from Fred Taylor than anyone else about playing the game the right way and being in the right spot at the right time and understanding how to play defense more so than offense. And uh, that was my role on the team because our recruiting class had five guys that probably averaged 30 points a game in high school. And I knew as freshmen we weren't going to score 150 points a game and Fred Taylor was selling defense. So I uh, sort of followed that plan and got me into the lineup a little quicker than uh, I probably would have otherwise. I mean, you had a couple other guys, Larry Siegfried, Mel Noll, pretty good ball players too in college. You know, they were great college players and great high school players. Both of them averaged a lot of points, and uh, both of them understood the game, and we ran the fast break, and, you know, 65% of our offense was uh, basically due to the fast break, and we ran the fast break differently than most people do. We brought the ball down the side rather than the middle because Fred Taylor had a philosophy of doing it that way could uh, end up getting us a better shot. Because usually you avoid the sidelines so you don't get trapped. How did you avoid getting trapped when you went down the sidelines? On a fast break, you know, most of the time people play the tandem defense, and uh, when that occurred, it gave us a free line to the basket. And, you know, we were excellent passers and good decision makers, and they were not used to seeing the ball brought down the floor that way, so it probably confused some of our opponents. See, I'm old enough to remember having watched you guys played, and there's a part of me that would like to see that Ohio State team go up against the Lou Alcindor UCLA teams. How do you think that would have been? You know, it probably would have been a, a good game. They probably would have had the advantage with Kareem being in the center position, and Jerry probably would have taken him outside. So, you know, it would have been a cat-and-mouse game and one of those games that, uh, you know, everyone would, would want to watch. 
And I see you got drafted by, what, the Browns, too, in 1962, and you briefly were on that team on training camp that year. What was it like? Wasn't Jim Brown on that team and Paul Warfield? Yeah, Jim Brown. Paul Warfield was still in college. He was a uh, freshman or sophomore when I was a senior, and Woody had him playing defensive back. But uh, Paul was also a baseball player, so he played baseball for the Buckeyes. And Jim Brown was on that team, as well as Lou Groza, and the quarterbacks were Jim Nanowski and uh, Frank Ryan. And, you know, Jim Houston was an all-pro defensive end and, you know, a lot of great players on that team. And I was with them for about four weeks, two weeks of uh, preseason, then two weeks of the exhibition season. I ended up being the last guy cut, so it was a good move by the Lord telling me that I should be a basketball player, and I never looked back, even though they tried to get me back six years in a row. Really? But you were, you were smart enough to stick with a sport that had a little less contact right. and a lot more longevity. Paul Brown was the coach that year, and uh, right. the next year, Blanton Collier took over, and he wanted to make me a free safety, I believe, so I don't think I would have liked that. <laughs> How did you get the nickname Hondo? Mel Lowe, my teammate at the time at Ohio State, couldn't pronounce my last name, so he said, we'll call him Hondo. And they said, why? And he said, because he looks like John Wayne from the side, and that movie Hondo was quite popular at the time. So you go from being a starter in college to, to being a sixth man in the NBA. What was that transition like? You know, all I wanted to do was play, and I knew I wasn't going to break the starting lineup of a team that won about four straight championships. So all I wanted to do was be a contributor, and I felt that, uh, you know, by play, being able to play defense as a rookie, he allowed, Auerbeck was allowed to use me more because that's usually one of the uh, weak spots of a college player coming into the game, and I was able to end up fifth in playing time that year, which was unusual for a rookie with the Celtics, and I think I averaged about 14 points a game, so I was probably uh, one of those commodities that he didn't realize was going to be as useful as I was. You're the all-time leading scorer in Celtic history. I mean, more points than McHale, Bird, Parrish, Russell. Paul Pierce just passed uh, Larry Bird the other day. When people say that Paul Pierce is the second-best player in Celtic history, how do you respond to that? You know, everyone has their opinion, and uh, it depends on who you talk to. Like, you know, when uh, Oscar Robertson and Jerry West were the two best guards in basketball, no one mentioned Sam Jones. Sam Jones is one of the great players of all time, and it just depends on who who has an, an opinion. And, you know, Paul Pierce is probably the best one-on-one player that the Celtics have had over the years. And I think that, uh, you know, he has a tremendous ability to close games out with uh, his ability to, to get a good shot at any time he wants to get a good shot. And that's unlike anything that the other players who I played with had that ability. You played with a fairly good uh, big man in Bill Russell. What was he like as a teammate? Bill Russell was all about winning, and, you know, he really could have averaged 20 points a game if he wanted to, but that wasn't important to him. And as you look at his career, he won two NCAA championships, a gold medal, 11 championships. He never lost a championship game or the final game, so no one else can ever say anything like that. So that's a testament 
to his ability to engage his teammates to do the right thing and be able to play the game to win. How was Red Arbrick able to get all these Hall of Fame, future Hall of Fame players on the Celtics? I mean, there was never a dry spell from the late 50s to, in essence, the late 70s. Well, the thing is, there were only nine teams in the league, so I was drafted by the Celtics on the ninth, ninth pick in the first round. So there was a pretty good idea that you were going to end up with a decent player, even though you were drafting last. And over the years, Red Auerbach never deviated from his uh, way of teaching people how to play the Celtic way and being able to go through his a lot of his basketball cronies to find a player that maybe no one else had ever seen. Red Auerbach never saw me play one game until I went to his training camp with uh, some of the Celtics at the boys' camp that he ran for uh, so many years. And when he saw me play, he thought he had a pretty decent player. But uh, Sam Jones was a player that he drafted that no one knew about because Bones McKinney, an old player of his, who was a coach at Wake Forest, had been given a call by Red and said, is there anyone in the ACC that I should look for a possible draft choice in in the upcoming draft? And Bone said, no, there's not anyone in the ACC, but there's a kid at North Carolina College who's the best guard in the South named Sam Jones. Red never saw Sam play, and he drafted him. So he had his sources and ways of going about drafting players. Will we ever see a dynasty again, like the Celtics back in the day? I don't think you will because people have the freedom of movement now. And, uh, you know, Red Auerbach never made a trade in the first 10 years that I was with the Celtics. Maybe not 10 years, maybe seven years. But there was only one trade made, and that was Mel Counts for Bailey Howe after about seven or eight years because he relied on the players that he had, and he was very loyal to them. And when we came into training camp, we were already – ahead of everyone because we didn't have to teach anyone but the rookie what the plays were and what the style was. How much of an advantage did the Boston Garden have for the Celtics? Well, we'd like to think that it was an equal opportunity for everyone, but everyone (laughs) that came there felt that uh, there were ghosts and leprechauns and everything else, dead spots on the floor, and we knew where they were and they didn't. We let that creep into their mentality, and we just uh, let them thrive on it because... We had a clock that was a hockey clock, and no one could understand how many, how much time there was because hockey clocks are 15-minute periods, and the Celtic basketball clock is 12 minutes. Well, they never knew whether it was 11 minutes, 12 minutes, 10 minutes, or whatever, and it wasn't digital in those days. So that was one of the advantages we had. Do you, do you think the NBA is better off nowadays with players sort of being able to, to say where they want to go? You know, Dwight Howard wants to find some place to go. LeBron James got the handpick where he goes. Or do, or do you like it better back when teams actually built, organizations built the teams themselves? Well, you'd like to see it both ways. You'd like to see them stay together, and you'd like to see them be able to move and make money because everyone in this country has an opportunity to do what they want, and it's no different in basketball. If you can better yourself by moving to another organization, so be it. But uh, it would be nice to have both uh, both 
types of things involved where you would have teams that would stay together for a while, but, you know, that's probably not going to happen because the team gets a little older and they lose, start losing some of their players, and then all of a sudden the good players want to be with a team that's in contention. So it's going to be something that uh, is going to continue. In the 65 Eastern Conference Championship, when Russell's pass struck that wire, Red Albert probably was fuming then, thinking, uh-oh, this could close, cost us the game. Well, the thing is, we thought that uh, the wire was not in bounds, which it was in bounds, I guess, and by being in bounds, it gave the ball back to Philadelphia and set up a scenario that uh, could possibly cost us the Eastern Conference Championship, but... Uh, for some reason, it didn't happen, and we were able to go on to win that game with me stealing the ball. And, uh, you know, Auerbach had been arguing with the officials for about 45 seconds. And when he came back to the huddle, there was not a whole lot to be determined other than the fact that we said, do not foul them, because if you foul them, you're going to give them a chance to tie it or win the game, because we were only up by one at the time. But fortunately, things happened positively for me and the Celtics, and we were able to go on to another championship round and win another championship. Was the best game you ever played in that uh, overtime game in the 76 finals again? Well, I, thought I, I thought I played a better game in 1974 against Milwaukee because in the triple overtime game, I'd been hurt from the second game of the series against Buffalo and even missed a game or two here or there along the way because I had a torn plantar fascia. And in that game, I figured I might be able to play 15, 20, 25 minutes, but I end up playing, I think, 53 or 58, something like that. And uh, it was one of those things that adrenaline keeps you moving and keeps you going. And uh, it was exciting because you thought you won it, then you thought you lost it, then you thought you won it again. And it was an ebb and flow game that uh, – unlike any other that I've ever played in. We talked to numerous Hall of Famers and potential Hall of Famers, and the majority of them say Bill Russell was the greatest player they ever played. But Bill Russell basically said that you're the best all-around player you ever saw. How does that make you feel? Well, I value his opinion. And the thing is, uh, you know, we had a great relationship because he had his assets and I had my assets. And, you know, putting them together to form a companionship with a, a team that thought the same way was one that, uh, you know, everyone enjoyed being a part of because, you know, I, I tried to play offense, defense, the mental game, the physical game, whatever it took. And uh, during the Russell's last season and last game against the Lakers, he told us we were going to win the game because, they were not a team that could run with us. And I said, get me the ball and I'll make everyone run. And at halftime, we were up by 13, I think, something like that, just because of the pressure we put on offensively. They start making a lot of shots in the second half, and it came down to a one- or two-point game, which we eventually won. But that particular series, Russell played every minute of every game which which was seven games, and I played every minute but one game. And when we went into the locker room after the final bell had sounded and we were the last to get dressed and we were the last to shower, we both weighed ourselves. And I started the season at 210, and I was 189. 
He started the season at 240, and he was 211. So it shows you what kind of toll the season takes on you. And that was without drinking any fluid or anything like that after the game. So we were truly spent and glad to win it. Do you enjoy today's NBA? I enjoy the playoffs uh, more than anything, but I'm more or less into my grandkids and family and that type of thing. I do watch it. I do watch college ball, and I enjoy the play of uh you know, the new stars on the horizon and that type of thing. And Kevin Durant is one. And, of course, I'm in West Palm Beach in the winter, so I get a lot of uh, coverage of the Heat. And they have three great players, and I'm sure they'll probably go on to win a championship at some point. How did you know when it was time to go, to call it a career? Well, I probably could have played another year, maybe even two, with the right team had Bird come along. But, uh, you know, my Final game, the starting backcourt was Dave Bing and myself. So we were the oldest backcourt in the league at about 74 years of age. And I figured it was time to go because you don't have uh, 38-year-olds carrying teams anymore. And I didn't see the horizon being one that was going to be uh, great. Had Bird come along that year, maybe I would have hung around for another year. I talked to Bob Cousy yesterday. He says he's kind of like Howard Hughes now. He's a recluse. He doesn't give interviews. But you played with him for one year. What was he like? I would love to have played with Cousy for 10 or 12 years because uh, he liked to pass the ball, and I had good hands. And one of the things that we developed right away was the trust that we'd have. If he threw the ball to me, I was going to catch it. And he was all about assisting players making baskets. But... uh, You know, he was a great inspirational leader. He had a lot of uh, mentality for the game and knew exactly what to do, what player to get the ball to, who was hot, who was not, how to direct the team in the offensive play-calling situation and that type of thing. So he was a master point guard, that's for sure, one of the best ever. What was it like having your number 17 retired at the Garden? Well, you know, there were so many numbers retired that I never thought that I would, you know, when I first came there to be a part of that ceremony. But uh, after winning eight championships and being involved with so many great players and great teams, you know, I find it to be one of the the highlights of my career. Thank you so much for your time, Mr. Havelcheck. It was a pleasure talking to you. Okay. Take care. My pleasure. What an interview with John Havlicek. Incredible guy. A great talent, a basketball icon. And still the leading scorer in Celtics history. Unless Paul Pierce lasts long enough to pass him, but I don't think he'll ever pass him in popularity in Boston. No, it's Havlicek, Bird, Mikhail. Don't don't forget a guy named Bill Russell. Bill Russell. But Bill kind of is his own man. Definitely. He's not a media presence. But we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to have on Dr. Memory Jerry Lucas. Stay tuned.